0: Clamber aboard a jury-rigged spaceship and blast off into parts unknown. Solve puzzles. Make friends. Make enemies. We're diving into a new space opera by Jessica Best of the Procyon Network, the strange case of Starship Iris. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. We're playing a show from the Procyon Podcast Network, a new network that focuses on making inclusive fiction in all genres. Starship Iris is the first program to come out of the network, and I've been really, really happy with it. It's got excellent world building, a solid plot, and memorable characters who make smart, relatable decisions. Later in this episode, I'll sit down with Jessica Best, the show's creator, to talk about badass Hufflepuffs, constructed languages, and pirate logistics. But for now, her show. The Strange Case of Starship Iris is a zippy science fiction mystery. I'm going to drop you right into the second episode, because I think this show is at its best when the ensemble is together. So here's a quick catch-up. Humankind has just narrowly won a war in space against an alien species. Violet Liu is a young biologist aboard the Iris, a research vessel of the Intergalactic Republic. In the first episode, the Iris suffers a horrible explosion. Violet is the only survivor. Another spaceship responds to her SOS and saves her. The commanding officer claims to be Kay Grisham, a classmate from Violet's university days, one that she doesn't remember. Grisham is nice. Grisham sounds cute. But it's a lie. Grisham is pretending to be a fellow alumna of Violet's school in order to secure her compliance. She's actually a mysterious woman named Arkady Patel. And she wants Violet alive because she and her confederates want to know what Violet knows. Too far away to be rescued in time, Violet freezes herself in a cryogenic storage tube until the mysterious ship can dock with the iris and thaw her. So, let's join Violet now, aboard this new ship, among people she doesn't trust. This is Episode 2 of Starship Iris. Checkpoint, Osiris.
1: The strange case of Starship Iris, Report 2, Checkpoint, Osiris. Note, this is an ongoing investigation All agents reviewing this case should begin with Report 1, Violet Liu. In accordance with regulation, a brief summary follows.
2: This is the Starship Iris. We had a catastrophic shuttle failure, cause unknown, and, um, I'm the only survivor. Oh my god, robot
3: voice, now is not the- A living, breathing human being here. Kay Grisham, I sat in your row. Hi. Put the ship on autopilot to our coordinates, cut the atmo reg. You've got enough residual air and heat to get you into the cryo chamber. We pick you up, you turn in the samples to our station.
2: I'm not the best scientist out there. I'm not even the best scientist out there named Violet Liu.
3: Well, you're the Violet Liu I want to meet. And not just because you're about to owe me a drink.
2: You're not the captain of the Philadelphia. Your name isn't Kay. You didn't fight in the war.
3: Yes, I have an agenda. At present, that agenda is to keep you from dying. And then? Get in the chamber. Find out.
1: Our audio resumes approximately six days after the previous transmission. Transmission two, begin.
2: The Captivity Diary of Violet Liu. Entry one. Upon request... I've been given a small audio device which I intend to use to record my experiences as a prisoner aboard this as-yet-unidentified ship. Definitely not military, human, or Darnian. It looks like it was built out of scraps. Is that a submarine door? I'm sitting in some kind of central room, I think, smaller than any room in the Iris. Six doors visible, jerry-rigged with what look like standard keypad setups. Not sure where they lead. Chairs. A table. This maybe a mess hall? Quiet in here, though. Mostly empty. Let's try to pretend that's a good sign. I've been told that nobody else will be listening to these recordings. However, this is coming from the same person who first lied to me about her name posed as a government captain and war hero gained my trust and then manipulated me into abandoning my samples and thus rendering my team's entire mission totally in vain so expectations remain low
3: ship's log first mate Arcady patel Right now, I am sitting literally five feet away as Violet Liu pretends to record an audio diary about me, in what may be the single most passive-aggressive move I've ever seen. Just what's going on with this chick? Is this what they teach kids at fancy regime-approved schools? Given we popped her out of cryo ten minutes ago, can we excuse this as a side effect of brain thaw? When is she gonna remember we saved her goddamn life? Does she realize the voice recorder's not even on right now? Then what's this green light? Oh, hey. Are we back on speaking terms? Ah. No, we're just... glaring sullenly. Gotcha. You know, hero's pretty subjective, but the war part of that wasn't a lie, for keeping score. Also, you can lose the captivity diary thing. We didn't... You're not a prisoner. Right. In that case, uh, can I go? We are floating in a freezing vacuum full of very pointy space debris, days from anything beginning to resemble solid ground. You wanna go take a stroll through the crushing void of space? Great! Let me go pop open the airlock for you. If your
2: goal is to build trust... It's not. If your goal is to get me to complain a little less... Maybe don't joke about throwing me into a dark, cold, endless waste.
3: You... want a blanket or something? What? You were a human popsicle for six days. Do you want a blanket? I don't care. You said you were going to
2: answer my questions.
3: Sure, but by then you already knew I was a liar, so... That one's on you, sweetheart. Here. Don't come near me! Okay. I am going to put this blanket on the ground, and then I'll just... Back away, hands up, like you're robbing me. Look, I wasn't kidding about the no torture part. We're not savages. We're not pirates. When the rest of the crew gets back. Where are they now? Looting your ship. Scrapping it for parts. Frying the remains to destroy any evidence. Look, we're not pirates. I never said we were totally above board. You're. Smugglers. We're smugglers. That's not a secret. You're bound to put that together anyway, from all of the, you know, smuggling.
2: Why aren't you out there scrapping the ship with them?
3: Tripathi's the most qualified. Jeter volunteered first, somebody needed to keep an eye on you, and Krej is the one flying this thing.
2: Krej is your pilot? Yeah. And Tripathi's
3: your... Captain. Before that, she was a mechanic.
2: And your first mate?
3: Yep. You look skeptical.
2: You're just, uh, very armed. What?
3: Oh. Well, you know, on a small ship, it's a job with a lot of facets. And Jeter? I'll be honest, I don't really know what Jeter does all day. It's unclear to me what we pay him for. Hey, Jeter.
4: Captain your Katie. I can watch our new friend for a bit. We're trying to leech the fuel, but the iris keeps
3: giving us the runaround. And your advanced study of linguistics didn't prove helpful? Just a sec. Let me scoot my jaw off the floor. Hey, Arcady. How'd you get my blanket? Well,
2: later. If you want your blanket back.
4: Nah, that's what I get for leaving it out. Hey, Brian Jeter. Ship, translator, and cook? Kind of? I just want to apologize for Arcady's general way of being.
2: Violet Liu, are you the good cop?
4: Man, if there's one thing we are not, it's cops. Well, there's a lot of things we're not, but cops is high on that list.
2: You're smugglers.
4: Pays the bills, you know. Hey, so when Arcady hacked the Iris's personnel files, she saw you went to Harmony? Class of 87, right? 85. (laughs) Your first year was the purge. Freaky, right? Watching them arrest half the faculty?
2: It was a... they had a duty to... Ah, you've never been allowed
4: to call it what it was, that's fair. So you... one sec. Brian Jeter to Arcady Patel. Hey, quick question.
3: Brian, I'm busy.
4: When Violet came out of cryo, did you sweep her for bugs?
3: No, Brian, because I am an utter novice with no idea what I'm doing and the trusting brain of a child. Yes, I swept her. Obviously.
4: Nothing on deck that could be transmitting back to our pals. No live
3: mics right now except the secure one on your collar. She wanted to make an audio captivity thing, so I gave her the battery to the coffee maker and told her it was a recording device. But other than that, nothing.
4: She can hear you.
3: Don't care. Arcady out.
4: Did kind of wonder why you were clutching that battery. So, you knew Alvi? No. Alvi Connors? Probably went by
2: Al if he could help
4: it. He was an engineer.
2: Al Connors.
4: Yeah, he was your navman on the iris, right? Look, it's it's not a coincidence we found your ship. We were looking for it. For for him. For Connors? He sent me this very weird transmission two weeks ago.
2: You're asking me to believe he was in contact. With your ship?
4: He and I tended bar together on Rydell one summer. Kept in touch after, helped each other out
2: when we could. Connors did favors for smugglers? Uh,
4: Connors did favors for his friends. Uh, Nothing illegal.
2: Uh, It's illegal to provide aid to
4: criminals. Uh, Okay, a a little illegal.
2: Why are you sharing this with me? If you're telling the truth, you have every reason to think I killed your friend. What? What? Everybody on that mission died but me. Nah, if you were some slick professional
4: assassin, you would have found a way to trigger that explosion in the jump pod without also damaging your ship and coming so close to dying yourself. And you never would have let Arcady trick you the way she did.
2: Yeah, that was... a rookie move.
4: I figure either you're on the level or you're a brilliant secret agent who's like dead set on infiltrating our tiny operation in the most chancy, convoluted way you could think of for like, I don't know, maybe a dare or something?
2: But you asked if I was transmitting.
4: Well, the intergalactic regime has a history of bugging people without their knowledge or consent. Fun little hobby of theirs. Republic. What?
2: You said regime, you mean republic.
4: Yeah, I really don't.
2: It's the largest human government in the universe. You can't change the name just because you don't like it.
4: They don't get to change the basic meaning of words just because they got sick of being called a military coup.
2: That's... There were extenuating circumstances. We were fighting aliens. Dude,
4: look me in the eye and tell me you really think that's all it was about. I... Sorry, I'm not actually angry at you, man. I just... Don't think you believe what you're saying.
2: You know, I have no reason to trust you either.
4: Yeah, I get that.
2: So you're saying Kay Arkady lied to me because you thought the IGR could be spying on me? You you knew Connors was dead by that point. Why even get involved? Well, beyond the
4: fact that saving your life kind of felt like the right thing to do, we were hoping we could learn more about whatever happened with the iris. <laughs> Peter. Yeah, Katie?
5: Ask Lou
3: uh, if...
4: ask her yourself, dude. She can still hear you. Besides, I thought you two had kind of a fun rapport?
3: Quit being an ass. We don't have time. Lou, what are the odds you know how to shut down your ship's fail The what's? The fail Violet. It's a security measure built into the system.
2: I don't know. You conned me into resetting the password. That didn't get you in?
3: No, you need deeper clearance to screw with the... authorization code. Not accepted. It's hard to override once the sequence starts. Would you like to try again?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Why would I have any clearance at all? I'm a biologist.
3: We only have your word on that. Your word. And some personnel files that are not that hard to fake.
2: I don't... Arcady, dude. She doesn't know.
4: Find another way.
3: Yeah. Arcady out.
4: Should we...
2: be worried?
3: Mm,
4: Not
2: yet. I, I don't think. Then when?
4: Ah, trust me, it'll be pretty apparent. Is this ship even
2: safe to be on?
4: Why? Oh, because of the whole... Frankenship... thing? (laughs) Trust me, the rumor looks a lot better from the outside. Besides, the iris was state-of-the-art, so, you know, that's no guarantee.
2: Um... Yeah,
4: you're newish to life in vacuum, right? Everything's high stakes, man, all the time, to the point where it kinda equalizes back out and you learn not to get so worked up about things. Like that old saying...
2: It's not a crisis until you're actively on fire?
4: I mean, that works.
2: Before, were you trying to imply that what happened on the iris wasn't an accident?
4: Uh, Look, uh, Connors knew something was up. Two weeks ago.
2: Is that what his transmission said?
4: Hard to tell exactly what he was trying to say, but it's gotta mean something, because it's very odd. How? Do you want to hear it? Is, is is that going to be weird for you? It's fine. Okay, well, let me just...
6: Jeter, my man, my pal. What is up? No doubt this message will be unexpected. Get in line. Surprise assignment. A short vacation from the lab. Safe to say I'm living large. Of course, the mission's secret, but exotic locales, limited work... It seems almost designed for me. We're passing near your neighborhood, Sector 284325. The schedule's gonna eliminate any chance of a reunion, tragically. You'll miss us by days. We'll be there in two weeks. But maybe next time, yeah? The boss man's pissed, but wrong or right, I am enjoying a break. The violet nebulas, the dark, quiet skies. Thought I might find it a little creepy or something, but damn, right? Sometimes you gotta enjoy the ride. So, in one or two days, we will be soaring as she flies through Checkpoint Osiris, Rydell style. Well, everyone knows goodbyes, bad luck, in space, so... Later, friend.
2: Wow. That... I'll admit that does sound like him.
4: Yeah, it's not... An imposter or anything? But do you notice how his eyes keep moving back and forth as he talks? Like, he's nervous or... Reading
2: something? Yeah, but are you seriously suggesting someone pulled a gun on him and forced him to send you that?
4: I don't know, man. Uh, Rydell style. That's a joke we had. Although it doesn't really make sense here. And he knew we weren't heading anywhere near that part of space.
2: He probably just forgot or wasn't paying attention
4: that wasn't Connors
2: look he was your friend and not to speak ill of the dead but that was absolutely Connors Uh, he seemed nice he was the only person on the ship who made an effort to be friendly to me but he was scattered checked out and maybe the laziest person I've ever met
4: Did you know him at all before the mission?
2: I didn't know any of them before the mission. It was last minute for me, too.
4: That guy loved his work. The summer we met, he was writing this program on the side. He'd pull a double at the bar and then go write code for six hours just to wind down. It was ridiculous. Made us all look bad. But man, you couldn't hate him for it. Work ethic like you wouldn't believe. People change. Checkpoint Osiris doesn't exist searched every map I could find. I don't know. It's freaky, hearing him. The voice is right, but the cadence, the syntax, is just... off. There's no way he wasn't trying to tell us something. I mean, he gives us coordinates and a date, talking like we're gonna pass each other, when he knew my ship was on the other damn side of space. We were on our way to try to intercept you when... yeah... Guess you guys ran ahead of schedule.
2: The checkpoint thing. There's this story
4: about Osiris. In Egyptian mythology, he was a god, right? So his evil brother chops him up, and then his wife's got to go around, gather the pieces, stick them back together. Seemed like a warning, maybe? Or a come find us. Or passing through a gate that doesn't exist,
2: like death. Yeah, I figured it was a math joke what? checkpoint osiris there were plans but it never got built some kind of local unrest or anyway it fell through it wasn't something you talked about but that's why the route in that region goes straight from 09 to 011. i lived near 011 for a few years people whispered about it there a little I could see a programmer joking about it. When is 10 an imaginary number? You know, something like that. Oh, Cyrus was number 10? It would have been. Huh. What?
4: Rydell style, the joke was management was really stingy with mixed drinks, how much liquor you could put in. So we started saying Rydell style to mean the same, but minus an ounce, or like the same, but one less. Like, a bike Rydell style is a unicycle, so Osiris Rydell style...
2: Checkpoint nine.
4: Wait, I think I know what we need to do. Liu. Arcady, we're kind of busy right now.
3: Violet Liu, if there is the slightest chance you have any clue how to bypass the failsafe... I already told you. Yeah, but your safety's on the line here, too. We are working on a countdown now, and I do mean a countdown.
2: What? No, it's a science vessel. No way would it have those protocols.
3: Yeah, well, tell that to your science vessel. Termination sequence commencing in five minutes.
2: So, is the iris going to self-destruct?
3: Unless Leo's got something to share with us.
2: I, I don't know. I've been conscious for half an hour, and I don't know what's going on. I don't know what happened. I don't understand what Connors was trying to do, and I have no idea why they built war protocols into my ship. This is just not the sort of thing we're told, okay? I don't know. Well, Shit. Plan B? Plan B is being
7: generous, but, yeah. Captain Sapati to all crew. Guys, it's hard to spin this in a positive way. In about four and a half minutes, the iris is going to explode. Now, we are currently tethered to the iris, and Arcady's senses cutting the tether might also trip the failsafe. No way to know. Arcady's senses also that it's still our best course of action. Detaching doesn't set the iris off. We want to be as far from that ship as we can when it does blow, so time is of the essence. If there's no objections, we're gonna untether. Nobody? Violet, you get a say too. This really is all our lives in the balance.
2: Uh, no, no objections.
7: Good. Brian, let me and our Katie back in. Violet, you too. We could use an extra pair of hands.
2: This way, come on.
7: Credge, are you listening? Captain Trepasti? Crent, how do you feel about outrunning an explosion?
8: Oh, I'd file it under lifelong dream.
7: That's what we like to hear. All right, power to full and stay ready. The second we are safely back in, I'll give you the signal. Brian, Violet, you guys almost in place?
4: Almost, this way. Uh, So the thing with Alvi's code?
2: Brian, no offense, but is this the time?
4: Uh, point taken. All right, Captain, we're here. Violet, you know how to work the airlock? Those three buttons, okay? I'm going to help him get back in. I... Those three buttons! All right, we're here.
7: Violet, now!
4: Come on, here, up. You okay, Captain? (laughs) Yeah, thumbs up.
3: Arcady? I'm fine, Jeter. Let's move.
4: Kerman Jeter, Captain Tripathi.
7: Everybody in? Remotely cutting the tether... (laughs) Crudge, get ready to six, live
8: the dream. Six, Strap in, have cats and moon doggies. What? Three, two, one. Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus! This is cool. Crush is the best. Is this really... Whoa! How best feels? <laughs> Anybody else and we'd be hot mash right now. Folks, I want to apologize for the turbulence. We are currently fleeing that smoke cloud at and- downright unsafe speeds through a debris field, that is, taking some damn impressive stunts on my end. Gonna advise that you all make your way to the nearest secure spot. <laughs> yeah! Oh.
7: Aren't there supposed to be emergency harnesses down here? Captain, you took them apart to
3: make that hammock in the mess hall, for morale. In retrospect, that was a poor call.
8: If conditions persist, you might want to take a sec and parade. Deity of your choice, I figure cover as much ground as we can. And if conditions get much worse, I'm gonna need crew and cheater up here pronto for a little good luck, kiss. Can't hurt, right? In the meantime, I advise you to remember that the closer we are to danger, the more clearly we can hear the elemental thrump of our own vitality. In this moment we are living. Kids, you are gonna wanna hold on to something.
4: Crash, dude, it is huh. Kind of hard to navigate the hallways right now.
7: Okay, we just, oh, need to get to the end of this hall. There's a safety, whoa, safety railing we can brace against. It should hold our weight.
2: Who designed this thing?
7: I did, but point taken. All right, count of three, we run as hard as we can for the railing. One, two, three. Ha. Everyone secure? We're good, Captain. Cred, how are we looking?
8: We are not in the clear just yet. Danger, I feel you, but I will not bow. Fear, I taste you, but I will not relent. Mortality, I see you, but I will not follow. <laughs> Eat it, mortality! Eat it with sauce!
3: Woo! Cheater, make them stop. I can't. It's cultural.
8: Fred, how's our rear view? No cloud in sight. That exploding varmint has been left to make a meal of our dust.
7: Not to put too fine a point on this, but is it safe
8: for you to slow down a little? Uh, yeah. Actually, we can start to... Everyone hold tight while I decelerate and ha! Maneuver around. Was that a chunk of space station?
3: Nobody can see it but you. We're nowhere near the screens. We're just outside the airlock.
8: Why would you... Fellas, there aren't any safety harnesses back there. Captain Tripati used them for... Yep, we covered
3: this.
4: Well, In your defense, Captain, it was a pretty good hammock.
8: Not
3: great, but... How's everyone feeling? Pretty sure I died for a moment, but here we are.
4: Feels like this does put another check in the column for something weird going on.
3: Oh. It's okay. It's over, Liu. You can open your eyes. It just... it doesn't make any sense. Why would you rig a science vessel to explode? God, it's almost like the so-called Republic isn't to be trusted. Imagine. Just imagine.
2: Look, I don't know everything Connors was involved in, but I
3: know they had no reason to go after me. None? Perfect little lapdog of the regime? They've got a lot of rules. You've never broken
2: any of them? Nothing worth all this. Do you know how much money and resources it takes to mount even a small expedition? That's a lot of trouble for a death trap.
7: I hate to say it, but we are talking about a regime that won a war because it was willing to accept collateral damage. No offense, but just because they had no reason to target you doesn't mean they wouldn't write you off as a loss.
2: No, of course that occurred to me, but- It occurred to you? And you're standing here defending them? I'm not defending them. I'm saying it doesn't make sense. I can acknowledge the Republic isn't ideal in all respects without automatically siding with a bunch of criminals.
7: Arkady, you told her we're just smugglers, right?
2: Why do you all keep
3: saying that like it's comforting? We break the law. We don't go around killing people as a matter of course. I'm like, you're less than ideal, alleged Republic. Arkady, stand down. Sanaa. Yeah, I know. I know, and I am telling
7: you to stand down. Listen, we'll do a full debrief later. In the meantime, Brian, I want to thank you for hauling me back in here. You might have saved my life. don't mention it. Kredge, I feel like anyone watching our flight path from the outside would have
4: seen a true work of art.
8: You're right. I am incredible.
4: Seriously, do you know how few pilots could have pulled that off?
8: Very few. Incredible. Going off comms for a spell, I'll be in the cockpit if anyone wants to join me for a drink. Or if Crewman Jeter wants to join me for a congratulatory kiss. (laughs) Dude. Cresh
7: out. Arcady, as always, when the chips are down, there is nobody else I'd rather have on my side. I am proud to know you.
3: What if we maybe skip the feelings corner this time? Hey, don't make me start a group sing-along.
7: Ugh. Violet Liu, good to finally meet you. I'm Sinathropathy, captain of the rumor. How long have you been out of cryo? I'm not
2: sure. Less than an hour?
7: Well, hey. Would
2: you like a cup of? Sorry, what? A cup of... Oh my god, sorry. Sorry, just... After everything that's happened, you're seriously uh <laughs> <laughs> You're standing there in a spacesuit offering me tea. Oh, I'm at a cup of
7: moonshine. We brewed in the engine room, it's gruesome. But I thought the day you've been having, maybe you could use a nip of something.
2: What time is it? On this ship? Half past thirteen hundred. It's only one thirty in the afternoon?
7: Yeah, but space-time relativity sorta of brings new meaning to it's five o'clock somewhere. Arcady, You want to join us? You and I can get out of these suits and dump our stuff, meet back up with Kredge, and... Hey, where'd Brian
3: go? Cheater? Pretty sure he's, uh, congratulating. Lou, seriously. You can let go of the railing.
2: I'm just, thinking about the physics of what we just did.
3: There's better ways to get a headache.
7: Oh! Before I forget, we retrieved a bunch of stuff from the ship, including what I assume are your extra clothes. In case you were worried what you were going to do on laundry day.
2: Can I go ahead and admit that had not yet occurred to me? I- is brain thaw- is that an actual thing? Aren't you a biologist? I didn't specialize in the freezing and unfreezing of human brains.
3: Well, brain thaw is a thing. I told you it was a thing.
2: Yes, and then in basically the same breath, you called yourself a liar, so... Great. Now I can't tell if it's really happening or just a combination of adrenaline shock and confirmation
3: bias.
7: Either way, I'm sure to do you good to take a moment. Get off your feet. Right, Arcady?
3: Guess that depends how much Leo really wants the opinion of some evil criminal smuggler. Uh, to be honest, I think...
2: I think I would like that drink.
7: Lovely. You know, we could probably scare up a kettle if you want tea.
2: No, thank you, Captain. Moonshine sounds just fine.
7: Violet, I appreciate your can-do attitude. Now if we can scrounge cups... Oh, hey, Brian.
4: We need to talk.
7: Great. We're just organizing a little group bonding. You're welcome to join us. No,
4: I mean, I found the key to Alvi's coat just before we lost the iris, and now I've got his message. His real message. That quickly? I wasn't exactly a cryptographer. It was easy once I knew what I was doing. What does it mean? Why don't you tell me?
3: Brian, what the hell?
1: Violet Liu, I think you owe us an explanation. End of transmission two. We have verified the identity of Violet Liu, referred to elsewhere in these files as Cindy Chu. We have also verified the identity of Arkady Patel, AKA K Grisham, AKA Ishani Kanetkar. She is a known con artist, a registered subversive, and a suspected army deserter. Too many other crimes to detail here, see attached file. No documentation yet found on Brian Jeter. Independently verified by Agent Oliva that Alvin Connors worked at several establishments on Rydell Station in the summer of 87, chiefly at a bar known as Jamie Price's. Following the collapse of Rydell in early 89, few employee records have survived. Sinatra is a name associated with the uprising on Crestwind Landing, in conjunction with possible alias Rukmani Desai. No documentation yet found for Krej. For the sake of clarity and consistent spelling, they will sometimes be referred to as Brittany Lefevre. This report has been transcribed by Ensign Best. If you need to review a written version, please access ProcyonPodcasts.com. That's P R O C Y O N Podcasts.com. This is Agent Park, codename Apollo, thanking you for reviewing this report. Additional thanks to Agent Cross, Agent Bauman, Agent. Gleason, Agent Finnegan, and the specialists at Procyon for their assistance. The Starship Iris case is currently classified as priority six. Due to the involvement of the criminal known as Arkady Patel, it is strongly recommended that this is revisited. Thank you. Long live the Republic.
0: And now, hopefully you understand why I like this show so much. There's so much Glazing promise in it. I can really see the rumor in its clunky, awkward assemblage. I can see its crew. I can see Violet and Arcady maybe smooching someday, maybe. And I can see the agents of the Intergalactic Republic slowly amassing evidence against Captain Tripathi and the whole gang. I'm really excited for you to dive into this show. It has so much to recommend it. Fun runs of... Great runs of dialogue, fun puzzles, mysterious mysteries, and, like, three alien languages, and an alien culture that feels recognizable. Oh, and space holidays. fanning. I talked to Jessica Best not long ago about the show, about Procyon, about her vision for leadership, and the power of empathy. Let's give a listen. Jessica Best, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Hi! Hi! It's
5: good to be here.
0: How do you do? Doing well. It is a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you. So,
5: this is going to be the
0: first time that anyone in my audience will have heard um, an interview with someone from the Procyon Network. Can you can you go over your mission statement with me?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, we are a group of um, podcast fans that came together over our strong feelings about various fiction podcasts, and sort of gradually realized in talking to each other. There was just sort of this this growing sense of maybe we could, instead of just, you know, having strong feelings and or complaining about things, maybe we could try to make the art we want to see in the world. And so Procyon is a group, mostly female, who are trying to make shows that reflect diversity in the world. Yeah. And in regards to gender, sexuality, race, culture um just trying to add a little bit more of that into the conversation
0: yeah i before before iris i'm not i'm not sure i ever had heard something with a south asian ship captain before mm-hmm. like a science fiction um franchise with a south asian like command officer mm-hmm. there's there's just a lot of elements of iris that are to me, just sort of seem quietly groundbreaking. <laughs> like you're not you're not endeavoring to make a big deal of it, but it definitely mm-hmm. challenges me. It makes me realize, oh shit, there isn't enough of this in the world.
5: Yeah, I feel a little bit awkward. when I was talking about diversity as it relates to my writing, just in that like waspy straight cisgender white girl talks about diversity.
0: Trademark.
5: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: That's a good jingle, though.
5: Thank you. I've been working on it um, (laughs) my whole life, basically. I mean, I came of age in the 90s. I came of age in the generation of, like, Captain Planet um, and that kind of thing. And I feel like, I don't know, like, sometimes the way that diversity is talked about, it's like eating your vegetables or something.
0: Right, like boxes to check.
5: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even, like, you just, you see this in, like, some 90s stuff. In terms of how they treat women, where it's like if like like they're gonna put a strong female character in the show, which is great. I am in favor of strong female characters. The the whole like early '90s feminism where they've got to make a big federal case about like everybody's got to be like what a a a woman
0: um a girl that punches
5: <laughs> right right the idea and definitely she punches right because in the early '90s that's the only way you could be cool. I feel like you know that there's a way to reflect the actual variety in the world without making it like a very special episode
0: because people just are
5: people just are man (laughs) the the personal is political the political is personal like when i was writing the early episodes and i I was just and this was before i was involved with procyon and it was just kind of me out there I would invite friends over and we would do table reads so I could kind of get a feel for how it would actually sound. Because when it's just you in your apartment and you're saying it to yourself, you're like, I have lost all possible f- mental framework for whether or not this even makes sense. You know, like you're just staring at the words at some point. It was really, really useful to like actually hear lines spoken by different people. But so there was a part in the second episode where uh, Camp Kamchapati says some line that's like, Prime the phasers and let's be ready to run if we need to. And just like seeing my friend read that line, and she's like a Star Trek nerd. It was just this immense moment of like, the joy of being little kids playing on a playground. Of like, oh shit, fucking anybody can be a captain. Like, why, why the hell not? Like, so often, I think, in Hollywood, they get obsessed with, like, these types, you know, down to, like, which personality type is, like, the brunette, which personality type is the... Blo- like, in real life, you know, captains come in all shapes and sizes and colors.
0: Yeah, you, were, you wrote um, in an interview, you said that you were kind of obsessed with the idea of a badass Hufflepuff. <laughs> Yes, Uh, for Captain Tripathi. What what does it mean to lead with that kind of empathy?
5: Yeah, I think that I mean, there are aspects of her that came directly out of talking to a friend of mine about just even in the corporate world, seeing different ideas of what leadership is and she'd like bounced around a little bit in terms of encountering a wide variety of management styles um, from her bosses and the first female boss she had ever said to her, so like, what are your, like, how do you feel? Like, what are your goals? Like, what, what do you want out of your career and how can I help you achieve those things? And it was just such a wild departure.
0: Isn't that nice?
5: Yeah. Like, oh, like, it's <laughs> you, you're just a, you, you can be a person to them. Like, you know, that it doesn't have to be competitive. It doesn't have to be adversarial. I don't know. I I think that we could stand to see more types of leadership in genre, entertainment, fiction, you know, because like it's it's very movie trailer friendly to have the type of leader who makes big yelly speeches while standing slightly above everybody else. But especially in a situation where maybe you're not operating under like a formal command structure. You know, it's got to be all about the relationships. It's got to be all about knowing the people in your group, knowing what they can do, knowing what they need to be happy and work with each other. Like doing that nurturing work can be part of it's it's a kind of a longer term view of leading
0: because mm-hmm. you can't just lead only during the yelly speeches you have to lead during the boring time out in the black right
5: right i mean like imagine having a boss who was just doing yelly speeches all the time you'd want to jump out a window
0: yeah mutiny <laughs> so since the rumor doesn't function under like a standard command structure
5: mm-hmm. is it
0: kind of like piratical was sinatropathy like elected
5: so she she definitely didn't attend any kind of captain training program I think it was sort of a thing of, at some point they kind of realized that she was doing all of the captain work. Uh huh. And it just felt natural for her to to have the name since she was already the person everybody was turning to. And I, I like the use of the word "piratical." There, I mean, this is probably a relatively well-known factoid, but
0: lay it on me. The the audience needs pirate facts.
5: Yeah, I mean. It, It kind of blew my mind to learn that, like, pirate crews were surprisingly democratic. I mean, especially compared to, like, the British Navy at the time. You know, it wasn't, like, brawls all the time. You know, it's kind of hard to be a pirate. You have to coordinate a lot of logistics. And you kind of need everybody to be on the same page about stuff, especially because, like, if you're a pirate crew and you have a problem, it's not like you can, like turn to like a higher (laughs) pirate government like no one's gonna bail you out of this
0: right it's it's as complicated as being like a a merchant ship or like a naval ship of the line but worse
5: yeah yeah and like you know that if you screw up there's a lot more of them than there is of you yeah no pirate ships were like the pay was better i mean and i'm sure that you know this varied from ship to ship but from what, what i understand like in some ways, kind of a better deal. Which isn't to say that it was, like, a great, awesome job, but, like, if if it's between that or the British Royal Navy, you're grading on such a curve, you know? Like, there was that whole period where people w- would legitimately become sailors because they were kidnapped into it. Like, you get really drunk, and you wake up, and you're on a ship, and, okay, I guess you're a sailor now. Like, it's a, it was a rough life, man.
0: So... You you offhandedly said something about grading on a curve. Yeah. And I heard Brian Jeter all of a sudden. <laughs> sure. Because um, that seemed like a Jeterism, which I now take to be a Jessica Bestism.
5: Yeah, definitely.
0: What elements of yourself have you put into each of the characters?
5: Sure. I think in a straightforward way, the character I most like is probably Violet in terms of being very anxious, being very stubborn, I mean, maybe it's more fair to say that I hope I am like Violet in that she the the combination of being unsure of herself but being strong underneath that, I think there's elements of sNA that I relate to in terms of caring for the people around you so much and giving giving people a little bit of shit, but also just clearly loving them and and loving the group um there's an element of Arcadia's cynicism that i find uh distressingly easy to write i would say that brian probably has the most of my speech patterns which is funny cuz huh. he's a very laid back character just
0: kind of like dude and man yeah
5: dude man i i call everybody dude and man i call my mom dude yeah
0: So I wanted to ask you, I want to go back and talk about the the origins of of Starship Iris, because it sounds like you said you were developing it before you met anybody from Procyon. Or maybe you were internet friends with them, but the network hadn't. Yeah,
5: I I knew them. And then I was writing the show and they started talking about forming a network. And then um, at some point, relatively late in the proceedings, because they were working on shows with each other, And somebody said, hey, we should see if Jess wants to be folded into this. So I I jumped on the very tail end of of the Procyon experience. So I had wanted to write some kind of an ensemble drama. Realistically, it was going to be a drama and comedy because I don't really know how to write without writing jokes. One of the earliest parts of it that I had was the idea of Arcady trying to get Violet to uh do certain things um and arcady's whole group's falling apart and then the the thing that that interested me was the idea of at, like once violet knows that it's all a lie how can arcady still get violet to do what arcady wants her to do like without credibility can you still make an argument and then the idea of saying to someone who doesn't view themselves as a dogmatic person at all, like saying to them, you know, science is a form of belief. Like, I think there's something kind of beautiful in looking at science through that lens and saying, you know, it's not this dispassionate collection of facts. Like there's something really glorious and life-affirming about the idea of looking for answers. But at the same time also that... It's kind of dangerous to see yourself as being purely rational because nobody is.
0: So we were talking about Procyon. Yeah. We were talking about how the logo is a raccoon.
5: It is. Uh,
0: and there's kind of a, a joke on that because all y'all are podcast trash, right?
5: Yes. Correct.
0: Your little raccoons digging in the garbage. What um what podcasts are you trash for?
5: Oh, God. Um,
0: Too many to name?
5: I. Uh, Big Adventure Zone fan all about the Adventure Zone. I,
0: I was going to ask if, if your use of dude predates the Adventure Zone because I definitely find myself saying my dude, like, to a far <laughs> yeah. greater extent now than I did, like, a year and a half ago.
5: Yeah, no, those McElroy's, they get in your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, no, I I think that for me, like, dude and man and also swearing— are all very deliberate um code switching that I learned that I taught myself to do as a teenager in order to try to pass as a fellow teenager because I was like a sixteen-year-old who was like really, really into this American life and politics. And I, I always felt like I was pretending to be a teenager, <laughs> um talking to other teenagers. So In terms of um, Bright Sessions was a big inspiration to me, just learning that it all came out of a, like, mid-20s podcast fan who just, you know, she's, like, Lauren Shippen is incredible, and her, and her, it's such a fun show, but, like, she's just a person who, like, just woke up and was like, I'm gonna write a podcast and did it, and The idea of, like, oh, what separates her from the rest of us is, I mean, she's very talented, but also, like, she just did it.
0: Lauren, if you're listening, (laughs) you inspired a podcast.
5: (laughs) Lauren, you're incredible. Yeah. Uh, And then on the nonfiction side, um, crazy about Memory Palace. Nate DiMeo does these little meditations on lesser known or not at all known figures from history, the way that he encounters and deals with history in terms of remembering that people have always been people. And also it's so poetic in like just acknowledging all the things we can't know.
0: Are you at Liberty to say like the framing device for starship Iris? Like, I mean, it seems to me that the ship is just bugged everywhere I don't know. I I suppose if I ask too many questions about that, it may reveal spoilers that you don't want to reveal.
5: Yes. I will only say that what's going on in terms of the framing device will be addressed. Part of that for me just came down to wanting to tell a story where the framing device is part of the story and things start to break down or change, like just fundamentally, structurally. I don't know. You see in like... uh, Sondheim musicals a lot of times that there will be a character who will start off being kind of the narrator character and then at some point usually in like act two other characters will be like hang on wait a minute why are you the one telling the story you're a person in the situation too and I mean that's resolved in different ways in different shows of his but like that changes from then on like the, the framing is different like that kindly old man narrator like isn't there anymore like the structure changes in a way that reinforces like oh shit's gotten real that's when you know shit's going down in a Sondheim musical is when people start talking to the narrator you're like fuck man
0: so i'll say for me what the what the frame of starship iris seems to do is maintain the the stakes of the IGR like being on their butts, even when the rumor is seemingly has nothing to do with um, the intergalactic republic, like even if they're off doing something completely different, it reminds you, "Oh, shit, they're being watched this whole time.
5: yeah, yeah, another thing that interested me from the beginning was the idea of telling a story where every piece of information that you have, you know that the villains also have. And so, yay, they're making headway. Oh, shit. Also, this is going to be so bad for them.
0: Right. With every revelation, the the priority of the IGR's mission raises, right? Right. What kind of science fiction do you like? Like, what are the influences of Starship Iris? And what did you feel was missing from the stuff that you loved?
5: Hmm. I mean, weirdly, a lot of the influences for it are not science fiction.
0: Ooh, interesting. <laughs>
5: I mean, like the I read the Animorphs books as a kid a lot, and so I think that that was I don't know. I think really central to the like why I wanted to tell an ensemble story in the first place is because I am a sucker to the point of self-parody for stories of plucky outcasts coming together despite their differences. And realizing that if they work together, they're more than the sum of their parts and they can defeat this, like, all-powerful enemy. I just, I want to mainline that in my veins. I want to rub (laughs) it on my eyeballs. It's shameful. Like, leverage is, I think, an iconic example of that. And everybody having their own skills that are different and their own experiences that are all valuable, are all an integral part of this ragtag crew that's always been very appealing to me i
0: gotta get back on that leverage train that was my jam a couple years ago
5: leverage is incredible it's it's so weird to watch it now in in this era of i don't know like the, the the technology stuff is like already dated um but like just watching that crew stick it to evil corporations and politicians it's Oh, it's a delight. So yeah, so like animorphs, leverage, the the music of Doomtree, which is a hip hop collective based out of Minneapolis. In terms of tone, it's at this point I think it's five. Yeah, it's five rappers and two producers, and they play they play with a lot of genres. But um, they have songs where all five of them are rapping on it together, and. It's almost like that heist team of them, like passing it back and forth, and they they rap about being a crew. They rap about uh, traveling together. I actually found out about them through Night Vale. Um, they one of their songs was featured on as the weather on an episode of Night Vale. But they they really encapsulate to me the idea of this tight knit group of very distinct personalities. Who are it's them against the world. So in terms of like science fiction, I was real into Firefly uh, in in high school and college. I mean, if you're writing a show about a group of plucky space smugglers, like that is the go-to comparison. Uh, I've I've watched a lot of um, Star Trek. My best friend is really into really well, really into all Star Trek, but so we've been watching Voyager. I mean, it's real 90s, but it's (laughs) fun. And again, like, we started really watching it around the election and Captain Janeway. Like, there is something about watching a capable, broad, commanding a crew of diverse specialists and, like, no one questions that she's in charge. That felt very therapeutic around the time of the debates. I don't know. I I like sci-fi. But in terms of being a reaction to stuff that I kind of felt like needed to be explored more, I kind of figured from the beginning that if I was going to write a race of aliens, space aliens, they needed to either be nothing like humans or exactly like humans. Because I think anything else has the potential to get really uncomfortable. Like in some of the older Star Treks, the idea of like, oh, this is the planet where it's a bunch of angry people. Or like... Oh, this is a planet where everybody is like super, 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 super chill. And that's the whole planet. Everybody's like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's just really hard not to read that as being some kind of stand in for some kind of prejudice. So that was like one thing I had from the beginning was Duanians are exactly like humans.
0: What... Do Dwarnians or should I, I'm not even sure if I should ask you this. I was going to ask, like, if you have a headcanon for what Dwarnians look like other than purple.
5: No, okay, I don't. They're purple and they're humanoid enough that it's not weird that Brian and Crusher are together. That's all I got. Gotcha. Um, And seeing the amount of variation and how people imagine that brings me life. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, so in my mind, Dwarnians are exactly like us, just with, like, different cultural history. And, like, everything about... The way that culturally they see the world different is just informed by their collective history and experience being different, but temperamentally they're the same
0: so Starship Iris contains a couple of constructed languages, including Dwarnian, medieval Dwarnian, and Rachel Noke uh, how did you how did you originally get into constructed languages, and how does a person make <laughs> one
5: Sure. um so I'm not good at language at all i on a political level, I think that everybody should be bilingual at the least, and I don't like—I don't want to be that ugly American who goes abroad and is just like, "Bring me a steak." <laughs> but I'm really, really bad at like trying to learn. I I took Spanish in high school and in college, and I took intensive Spanish. So the expectation was, you know, like your classes are in Spanish, you write all your papers in Spanish. And I could not make the switch to thinking in Spanish. Um, and I found trying to talk in Spanish just so frustrating because I didn't speak it well enough to make jokes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what's the point?
0: Oh, I can identify.
5: I, I can't prove how clever and funny I am. Why even talk? Um, which tells you a lot about me. But... Um, you know, I I believe in language education. I believe in communication. I believe in nonviolent diplomatic solutions for problems whenever possible. And so, fairly early on, it was important to me that there would be a linguist on the ship. Uh, and then I realized I'd backed myself in the corner of the only way you can show a linguist being good at their job in an all audio medium is if you hear the languages they're translating. Uh, so I was like, I did this to myself. <laughs> I, I can't complain about this. But it was not me going, oh boy, how can I apply my, my uh, skill and passion for constructed languages into a show? It was like, oh, fuck, I've got to do this, don't I? So I talked to a friend of mine, actually the same friend who pointed out that Aliens probably wouldn't have DNA. She's a very smart person. Uh, and she's a linguist by education. And she pointed me to some kind of a guide. And yeah, I just made a list of sounds that I hadn't really heard in English. And I thought about sort of broadly what I wanted the effect of the language to be. And I figured I want Rachel Noke and Duarney to sound recognizably different from each other. So they need to have different sounds from each other. And so like... Vritsil-Nokian is like an older language, so I figured I would use like harsher sounds for it. Um, And I figured out what I needed to express in each language. And then I just invented words to say those things. And weirdly, it was hard to write pure gibberish. I think that the brain biases itself so hard towards recognizable patterns that even if you're just trying to type nonsense, you look at something and you go, oh, damn, that's a real word. <laughs> so so I created two languages. And then also for the fifth episode, I created slang that was also fictional. And there was a point when I was working on that where I had a word that felt like a good slang word. And then I went... I should Google all these words to make sure that they're not real and offensive terms. And one of them was.
0: Is it, is it a commonly known offensive word?
5: No, I don't even remember what it was because it was gibberish to me. Mm-hmm. But at some point I went, this is like a very pronounceable word. Um, probably someone has used this in the past. Yeah, gibberish is hard.
0: That's really funny. Um, okay, so to take us out, Jess, what gives you a sense of wonder?
5: Mm Hmm. That is a good question.
0: We pride ourselves on service here at RDR. (laughs)
5: Um, I am a humanist who really struggles to be positive. I think that that's part of why um, Memory Palace hits me so hard is just the, the moments of being struck by how long people have been people. You know, there's just there's so many of us living in every possible condition all over the world. And there has been for so long. Just the magnitude, just the sheer humanity. (laughs) Um, Yeah. All the stories that we'll never even know. Yeah.
0: Dang. (laughs) So the, the great mass of unknown humanity is what is what gives you a sense of wonder?
5: Yeah. Yeah. And also those, those moments of feeling connected to history and feeling connected to the human experience really briefly before the cynicism kicks back in.
0: <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was a delightful time.
5: Oh, thank you for having me. It was super fun.
0: It was my pleasure. Oh. Thank you, Jess. And thank you, listeners. Follow Starship Iris on Twitter at Starship Iris. They've also got an excellent Tumblr at iriscasefiles.tumblr.com. You can follow us at Radio Drama on Twitter or on Facebook, and you can visit our website and submit your own show at radiodramarevival.com. Your ratings and reviews are always welcome, whether on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcatcher is. Subscribe, review, tell a friend. Thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. Our theme music is Danger Digidoo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music in Oakland or on SoundCloud. Until that service, along with California itself, tumbles into the sea. Our ship's pilot is Matthew Boudreau, who is also our line producer. Matt can sail us through a lightning nebula while blindfolded, as I learned one fateful day after having proposed a very foolhardy bet. Our science officer is Eli McElveen, who also serves as our interview producer. Eli can identify a dangerous alien life form at 900 paces. He just usually neglects to warn me that they're dangerous until I'm already trying to shake his hand. Our ship's gunner is Monique Boudreau, who also serves as a researcher and submissions editor. Monique is never happier than when she's behind the controls of our nine-barreled plasma cannon, which, like, I do not know how she got one of those installed without me noticing, because we are a research vessel, Monique! Our navigation officer is Heather Cohen, who also serves as a researcher. Heather can dead reckon us home from anywhere in the galaxy with just a sextant and a cereal box. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Our captain is Fred Greenhalge, executive producer. He has a cool captain's chair and a sweet command patch. When I grow up, I want to be just like him. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. And this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.